Welcome to our Friday Five Live podcast hosted by Meg Foster. Meg has spent 20 years in higher education focused on student success initiatives and working in areas such as orientation, faculty development, online learning, student leadership, and first-year initiatives. Well, welcome everybody. Happy Friday. We're just so grateful to have you with us Um, today. We've got uh, a full um, uh, 45 minutes conversation. We could probably spend days having this conversation, so we'll try to to keep to our time limit. And last fall in December, we were really fortunate to have Reggie Strobel join us to talk about specifically how we can support Black male students. There's been such a heightened awareness, I feel like, in the last year, particularly um, given the pandemic, about concern regarding um, black male students not enrolling at our institutions, you know, not finishing degrees, and um, a heightened awareness of how we can better support this population. Um, if you weren't weren't able to join us um, in December for kind of part one of this discussion, um, I'm just going to give a brief introduction to Reggie and to our uh, student guest as well. Um, Reggie's the assistant director of student success the Achievement Program at Anne Arundel Community College, um, where he coordinates the Black Male Initiative. Um, Reggie, I'm going to make sure that you give us just a a brief overview, too, of your background, because it's such an incredible story. And and I was really fortunate um, to to have the opportunity to get to work with Reggie at at J. Sergeant Reynolds Community College many years ago in a leadership um, development program. Um, So, Reggie, welcome. We're so glad to have you with us today. And, And Reggie was great enough. One of the comments that came out of our, our discussion in December um, was that we really love to hear from a student perspective. I think that's so powerful when we listen to our students and we, we talk about that a lot in our podcast discussions. And so we're really fortunate um, that Reggie invited um, one of his former students. I kind of, the connection here, you're my former student, Jawan's your former student. Oh, it makes me a little emotional. Um, Jawan, um, and Jawan, would you mind unmuting and just sharing with us how to pronounce your last name? I should have asked that earlier. Um, Ajayi. Ajayi. Jawan Ajayi is currently a student at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, uh, where he is studying computer engineering. Um, prior to UMBC, he was a student at Anne Arundel Community College, where he participated in the Black Male Initiative. Um, at UMBC, uh, Joan is a McNair student ambassador um, and also a teaching fellow um, in the McNair program. And his plans post-graduation this spring are to pursue graduate studies in electrical engineering, all of which is amazing to me because that involves a lot of math and math is not my thing, Joan. I, I needed somebody like you. So we've got um, four pretty robust questions um, to to talk about today, but I just want to remind our listening audience, if you have questions, if there are comments and things you want to pose, please um, put that in our chat. We will weave that into our um, discussion uh, today because I know it's a robust one. So um, I'm going to actually skip our initial, skip around a little bit. Reggie, you know I like to do that. Um, I would love it if the both of you, um, and maybe we'll let Reggie kick off and then Jawan, just kind of tell us a little bit about your educational journey, because they're such unique ones, um, and I think that's such an important part of our discussion today. Absolutely. Um, thank you. Um, so excited to be welcomed back. Um, happy Friday to everyone here. Um, so as Meg said, my name is Dr. Reggie Strobel. I'm originally from Richmond, Virginia. I am a proud first-generation college student. 
Um, my father received his GED. Uh, my grandfather received his GED. And I believe my grandfather's grandfather received his GED as well. So very early on, it was very important for me to break those generational, um, the generational trauma and curses within uh, my family for me to pursue uh, my education. Didn't really start off strong in high school. I graduated with a 2.1 GPA. Um, Found out about community college. I just wanted to get my associate's degree. Uh, was able to be mentored by Meg Foster. And she was able to kind of really open the, explore the field that there was actually a, a job field where I could actually work with students directly like myself. Um, so decided after I graduated from community college to go to Virginia State University in Petersburg, Virginia, which is a historically black college and university. Um, obtained my bachelor's in psychology degree um, Graduated from there, uh, got my master's in educational leadership from Virginia Tech and decided to work for a little while. Um, in 2017, was presented with the opportunity to get my doctorate degree in an EDD program. So I went to school on weekends and some weekdays as well, but I decided to go to school for three years straight, no breaks. I did summer, fall, spring, summer, fall, spring, and summer, fall, spring. And I received my doctorate degree in the midst of the pandemic. So I received my doctorate degree in April, April 24th of 2020. So uh, my doctoral anniversary is um, coming up next month. And when I got it, it was kind of, again, fresh pandemic, fresh kind of COVID where everything was shutting down. So I didn't have a formal uh, defense in front of uh, my professors. I actually had to defend um, in a virtual space in Zoom. So that's a little bit about me and my educational background. Thank you, Reggie. It's just such an incredible story. Um, Jawan, would love to hear from you because you've had some similarities, I think, in educational journey, but also some some pretty unique ones as well. Um, hello, everyone. So my educational journey has kind of like been interesting and a little bit changed over time. Uh, so originally, I graduated from um, not County, you know, um, not County High School, which is uh, in Glen Burnie. I mean. It's, it's in the Glen Burnie area in Maryland. Uh, I graduate, after graduating, my goal was to, you know, go straight into like a um, university. So I applied to like University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC, but I did it. Well, I got in with a condition of me completing 12 credit before I can actually come to UMBC. So I decided to go to um, AACC instead, which is an Arundel community college so I decided to go there instead and while there you know getting in there I was able to get like this multiple scholar like at least one big scholarship that offered me uh, about like four thousand per semester to pay for school I also got like financial aid uh, which I which basically means like throughout like my time uh, at least that first year at uh, ACC I wasn't going to pay for anything so Upon that, I decided that I might as well just stay at AACC and my associate degree mainly because they can fund that and it's like less payment burden on me. So I was able to kind of stay at AACC for like around like um, for six semesters. I kind of did the same thing Mr. Uh, Dr. Reggie did, uh, but a little bit different. So like every semester I was in classes, including summer, winter, except for winter. I didn't take winter classes. Like I just can't. It's, it's too crazy. I really can't. Uh, but summertime, for every time I was in classes trying to at least try to graduate that as soon as I can, um, I ended up spending about like 
three years there, I ended up getting my associate in engineering transfer, computer science, and also like math, math, mathematics before transferring to like UMBC. Uh, and then upon UMBC, I also like, upon getting to UMBC, I got like a little bit staggered in the beginning where for the first time in my life, I ended up with like a 2.6 GPA, which has never happened throughout my entire time in high school or even at ACC. So it was like a wake up call and kind of like, I need to change the way that I'm studying and the way that I'm doing things mainly because like what worked at AECC wasn't working for me at UABC since mm. it's like mm-hmm. extremely different area. So I had to change the way I was studying and the way I was approaching my classes and things like that. Um, but while there, I was able to kind of like connect with um, programs that I know that serve um, underrepresented students and which is kind of like one thing I've noticed like with every of my success, including like high school and AACC, there's always a program that I'm part of that has really pushed me and helped me to be successful in my journey. And just being able to establish that at UMBC also helped because my first semester, I really didn't have a community or anyone like that, that I can reach out to if I have any question or anything like that. So finding that at UMBC was really helpful. And once I found that, I was able to kind of like just ride the wave and just keep you know going and you know know, to try to achieve my goal so originally I wanted to like do my master's in electrical engineering but upon like joining uh the McNair Scholar program they kind of like encouraged me to kind of go for the PhD and go for you know kind of set my goal a little bit higher which is why I am you know planning on going straight into my PhD program as upon graduating It's amazing. So were you not connected to the McNair program in your first semester at UMBC? So my first year at UMBC, so I was working with the program. I wasn't connected like with the program program. So like I wasn't part of the scholar program, but I was working with the program. So I was connected to them in a way that I was, you know, Basically, I work for them. I wasn't really connected to like all the other resources that they might be able to have to kind of like help me and things like that. Um, but even with that connection that I had with them, it also really did help me because originally, like, honestly, I was close to failing my first semester there, but I ended up with like two A's and two C's, which, I mean, again, trying to understand during that time, like C doesn't really mean failing, but like to me, I felt like C was failing. So just being able to understand that, that doesn't mean I'm, I failed the class. It means that I need to either like decide if I want to retake it or just move on. So one of the reasons why I kind of like even stayed a little bit longer at UMBC was because I tried to kind of like go back and retake some of the classes that I got seeing that I know is really like important for like my degree. And I need mm-hmm. to understand like the concept and the things that the class is teaching. So I go back and kind of like retake those so I can better improve like my knowledge about the topic and things like that. Yeah, thank you, Jawan. I mean, and what a great tie-in to to one of our uh, kind of initial questions. So one of the things I've heard you saying is how important these programs have been, right, to your success. Um, I also love that you're really sharing with us an example of growth mindset, right? Like that you had this grade of C and it it was really um, this opportunity to kind of learn that first semester really helped you to understand 
how you needed to, to study, right? That that was going to be a different experience at UMBC in your program than it had been at Anne Arundel. So um, I, I really appreciate that. Reggie, that's a nice tie into the blackmail initiative um, at Anne Arundel. And could you give us just a little backstory about kind of how that program came to be um, and what it, what it entails and maybe kind of where you see it going in the next couple of years or so? Absolutely. So that's a um, great question. And, you know, one of the reasons that a black male initiative exists is for students like Juwan, you know, students who may need that kind of additional support. And again, um, as he mentioned, you know, he struggled without McNair scholars, but then when he joined um, that program and actually had that support, he was able to excel. So black male initiatives, they're really created to give students a sense of belonging on campus and data is showing um, that when students feel that they belong um, on campus and they're and that they're actively kind of engaged, um, their retention rates and persistence rates, they skyrocket through the roof. Um, so the Blackmail Initiative was um, it was created based on a need for retention and persistence of black males at Anne Arundel um, Community College. Um, so some of the uh, some of the things that we do within the initiative is we do um, four checkpoints um, per semester for students. So we do an initial advising appointment. We do a mid-semester check. We also do an end-of-the-semester check. And then we just do a just kind of general check-in of how things um, are going. So these appointments can last anywhere from 15 um, to 30 minutes, sometimes an hour, again, based on the student's needs at, the, at that moment. Um, one of the other things that we also offer is monthly roundtable discussions. So one of the things that came out of our monthly roundtable discussion was um, to transition from actually calling it a black male initiative to making it a black male institute, um, because with this initiative is really saying this is something we're just kind of starting and getting off the ground. But as you're looking at making this an institutional wide um, kind of focus, you want to call it male, a black male institute to say, you know, I, I'm just using myself as an example. I may be in charge of the black male um, institute, but it's the institutional responsibility to actually be um, gathering as well. So we do have roundtable discussions. Those are once a month where we invite, invite in campus partners. So we may invite in the Department of Psychology, Department of Business, School of Liberal Arts, where they come in and actually get an opportunity to have a kind of one-on-one talk with our African-American males on campus to let them know about different strategies for success and then also um, different things that they can offer them to be successful um, at the school. We also offer a monthly, I mean, a yearly um, summit where we bring in multiple speakers to kind of speak to um, our Black males. And then lastly, one of the things that we um, have implemented this semester, which has been really successful, we have implemented a faculty and staff meet and greet for our Black males. And we started, uh, again, in this COVID environment, it has really forced us to think how do we connect with students digitally as well and how we're more inclusive in our practices. So we have started to utilize Google Jamboard. And if you're not um, familiar with Google Jamboard, Google Jamboard It's a platform where students can ask questions anonymously and directly. So when there's something going on, they can ask it, but they don't necessarily have to speak um, out loud. And some of the questions that the students ask at the meet and greet, because we had VPs at at this meet and greet, we had some faculty members, we had some deans. Uh, One of the students asked the deans, 
can we meet with you one-on-one? And the deans actually responded and said, and said yes. So that student had the flexibility of asking a question that they may wanted to ask, but not necessarily feeling that they were on the spot. So in general, that is the Blackmail um, Initiative at AACC and some of the things that we do and provide for our students. So that name change to me mm-hmm. is really important. I mean, I think our language is so, so important. And so to say, this is our Blackmail Institute, right? This is something our institution values. It's something we're investing in. It's not anything that's going anywhere, right? Um, it's so, so important. How many students do you serve, Reggie, through your program? That's a great question. So we serve all Black males on campus, but there are um, general touch points. So we're at about 50, we're about 50 to 60 um, right now, but we're looking to increase um, that number because, again, um, one of the things with the community college, there's always this transition in and transition out. Um, so a student may be graduating or some students come to community college for a semester or two. So it really fluctuates depending on the semester. So fall, we usually have the most participants, but right now in the spring, we're at about 50, between 50 to 60 students. Okay. And does this connect at all? I mean, and from my understanding, Joan, the McNair program is part of the kind of larger umbrella of TRIO, if I'm remembering correctly. And so I'm wondering, Reggie, do your programs at all connect to like TRIO initiatives? At, at so that's the, um, so I know one of the questions asks about how to reach out, um, kind of to make those community partnerships. That's actually the next step within the Institute. And I know there's a couple of folks on the call um, who are doing kind of similar work as I am, but that is the next step Whereas you know, if a student for two years has been getting this support, and then once they transition to a UMBC or University of Maryland, where they're going to these larger institutions, mm-hmm. there are support offices there at the larger institutions. But I feel like it's our job or my job at the community college to make sure I have that connection to that resource so that student can feel that same support once they get on campus. Because for some students, um, as Jawan shared in his story, you know, he had a two, five, two, six his first semester, never really experienced that. Some of those students don't do what he did and go get the additional support. Some go on campus and they, you know, within that first semester in this new environment, they, you know, they, they're not successful. They're not retained. So I think um, building that bridge um, mm-hmm. that it can burden some of the gaps. So once students do transition um, to four-year institution, and, and we can do that same thing with the high school students who are transitioning to um, the larger four-year institutions as well. Um, the summer bridge kind of the summer bridge and summer bridge program is the next step for our institute. Okay, so that's one of those future visioning mm-hmm. is going to be a summer bridge. Mm-hmm. Do you have a timeline for that? Um, actually, this semester. So the students who are transitioning out. As far as graduation, we want to make sure that they are connected with whatever four-year institution that they transition to. So if they decide to go to a HBCU or predominantly white institution, if they decide to go to a private liberal arts college, um, our committee, we want to make sure that that student is connected before they get on campus. So that's part one. And then part two, for our incoming freshman students, we do now have a summer bridge component where they actually can take, um, so they are on campus for about three weeks. They go through a traditional, um, a traditional kind of college schedule. 
as far as they have different time periods where they're taking courses actually by professors that are uh, professors at Anne Arundel Community College. And then they have access. So, you know, one of the courses that we offer is an introduction to English level kind of college preparation, but that's actually taught by one of the professors at AACC and the same thing that we're doing for math as well. So not only are we connecting students with just kind of some prep work before they get on campus, we're also connecting them with potential professors that they can take. So if a student builds that strong connection with this math professor, they can take them or that math professor can be a resource for them to connect them with other faculty members on campus that can assist them as well. And I really love all of that because it speaks to those connections and that sense of belonging, right? Mm-hmm. That we know is so, so important. So I, I love this idea that you're, you're reaching down into the community. I'm only saying down, just thinking like K-12, right? Like you're reaching into those high school partners doing this summer bridge program to help transition students. And then, and then you're reaching out to the four-year institutions and creating that bridge as well. I would imagine that handoff piece is, um, really very important. It's, it, it, it's, it's crucial. time intensive, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's the next question, Reggie. I mean, and, and Joanne, I know you, you can speak to this too, cause you've, you've worked with Reggie, right? Like, have you ever met anybody who has more energy or manages to squeeze? I don't know how the man does it like 24 hours somehow in his world is really like 36, but, <laughs> but, but what kind of team do you have helping you at Anna Rundle? Yeah, absolutely. So um, with initiatives that even with trio offices, they're typically not large staffs as far as numbers. Um, So sometimes you do, sometimes you are in that position where you are a team of one. So what I have done to combat the team of oneness Mm -hmm. is to create an institutional wide committee. Um, So within on my committee, I have someone from admissions, financial aid, I have multiple faculty members from different departments. And most importantly, I have added students to the committee as well. The reason I've added students to the committee, because, you know, at first, we as a committee, we were planning events, we were planning programs, and we felt that we would be successful. And then not necessarily we'll fall dead, but we wouldn't have as much student engagement as possible. Mm -hmm. But now having students on the committee, you know, they were able to share, you know, if you if if you have a Instagram page and you create a reel, I may look at that more than the actual email that you sent me with all the information that you're trying to share. So we've been able to connect and engage with students more. So we're about a team of eight um, right now, but we are looking to increase that because there are so many multiple perspectives on campus that we want to capture. We want to gain. So instead of just, again, working in that silo or that team of one mindset. Um, had to open that up and create an institutional uh, team. And then within this um, committee, we add student voices. We have students on our committee as well. And we made our uh, committee um, inclusive as far as gender as well. So even though we are the Black Male Institute at AACC, we also offer and we welcome um, all genders, um, all nationalities, and all race um, as well, um, just to make sure that we're inclusive and gain multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm. And that's a really wonderful transition to kind of our next question about um, the importance of, because you mentioned this, listening to the needs of our Black male students, right? Like, and, and we're all, I mean, how many committee member teams have we all sat around tables where we're like, well, we think our students need blah, blah, blah. Um, so, and, and Jawan, feel free to chime in here too, because I'm sure 
in your work, both at Anne Arundel and then also at UMBC. I know, um, you know, I'd love to hear kind of your, your, you are a student. What are your thoughts about how we can um, really make sure that we're very intentionally listening um, to our students and their needs? So either of you feel free to jump on that one. Perfect. I can, um, I'll start us off and Jawan, please feel free to jump in because you've been to multiple programs and um, Jawan was actually, so I oversee the assistant to um, the student achievement and success program. So he was uh, part of our front desk um, team as well and did an amazing okay. job in that role too. So one of the things that I was able to implement for our institute was utilizing the importance of qualitative and also quantitative data. So having an actual research design and also a research project template that I was able to share to VPs and also deans, because I will go to meetings and we will have great student stories, but it's just been more powerful and impactful to actually have the data that's capitalizing, that's capitalizing the student voice. So having data, um, you know, so we first we started off with the initial satisfaction surveys to just trying to check in with all the Black males on campus, even if they didn't participate in the Black male initiative. Um, how are we doing? What are some programs that you want to see? And most importantly, what's the time that you are available the most? So we were able to find out through that survey data that students were available between 12 and 1 and then also 5 to 6. So we were able to transition our programming from necessarily just kind of having picking dates, but actually getting students feedback and input of this are the, these are the dates and these are the times um, that we are available. So that was part one. Um, and then part two is creating focus groups for students as well, because there's only so much information that you can get from your qualitative data. But having the focus groups, you're able to ask students those pinpointed questions to actually see and develop um, what are some barriers to success for you at Anne Arundel Community College? And outside of that, it gives you an opportunity to see if there's any barriers to success for students in their particular environments um, that they live in. Um, one example that came from the focus group, I had a student who was trying to submit um, homework through their iPhone. You know, their laptop broke and this student didn't know that our college offered um, temporary, you know, laptops if you needed one or, you know, access to our library where they could actually come in and use the computers at um, the library. So that was a barrier to success where a student was falling behind, but didn't necessarily need to fall behind. Right. But in their student's defense, student didn't, didn't know that the resource was available on campus. So having um, the focus groups as well. And then third, providing a space for students to actually speak and to gather. So even though we have roundtable discussions, the first 30 minutes is going to be our featured guest speaker. They'll come in and kind of, you know, give information about their department, et cetera. But the last 30 minutes, I leave it open for the Black males on campus to connect. So for them to talk about any issues that they may want to talk about, or just to let them just use that as a networking opportunity as well. So those are three um, practical strategies. So one, make sure you, you know, get in those, capturing the student voice through surveys. To having students voice through focus groups where you can ask them more pinpointed questions. And then three, creating a space for students to actually have open and free um, conversations. So, you know, some campuses, they have actual centers where students may meet and gather. So there may be like an office of multicultural student affairs. 
Um, some um, universities have actual like kind of cultural centers where students come in and that's their space. But again, in COVID, we've had to create a virtual space and a virtual platform for our students as well. Juwan, did you want to add anything? Uh, sure, yeah. So one thing I would definitely say that I've seen that has worked and I actually liked a lot is when um, faculty or professor actually, you know, take the opportunity to reach out because as students, most of us, um, most of us, the way we see faculty or, you know, professor is that they really don't care about what's going on in our personal life. And um, I feel like they also have to try to understand, like, you know, there's our student, everybody have something different going on in their personal life, different situations that they're in and just being open-minded that, you know, if there's a student that you see that's not showing up or something like that, reaching out to them, um, personally, like a great example of this, I, at least that I really loved and I really appreciate this past time was, um, there was a school that I applied to. And when I was applying to this school, I really didn't reach out to any of the faculty because I've reached out to so much faculty and none of them really reached out back to me or even emailed me back. So like in my mind, it was like, no, there's no point to me reaching out because I'm not going to say anything. But uh, one of the schools that I applied to and I got into, I didn't even know that I got into, into it, but the faculty that I said I wanted to work with, she reached out to me and she even kind of like tried to take the initiative to set up the meeting and things like that. So just reaching out um, to students, I feel like is the number one thing. There are students that will, you know, reach out back and then there are students that won't. Um, in cases like that, there really isn't like, I mean, one thing I've kind of like learned as I'm going on, you know, in this experience is that initiative is both ways. It can only happen like one way. So it would be up to the student. And I feel like most students, you know, if they really want to be successful and they are shooting for that goal, they will reach out back to you and let you know like, hey, yes, I need help. Or yes, I can do something right now or, you know, something like that. Thank you, Joan. And I think, you know, you make such an important point that I, I think one of, one of my hopes as we transition into whatever kind of comes next from pandemic learning is that um, we're, we're able to um, see one another's humanity um, more. Um, I do think traditionally, right, like faculty are kind of the sage on the stage, as, as we often say at our house, and then the students are um, just there to learn, and, and we forget that we're also people, right? And so uh, making sure that, that we're connecting with one another um, in those uh, just in a way that, that really emphasizes um, our humanity, I think is so, so important. Um, and I think you bring up a really important a thing we need to remember is that um, we have faculty and staff have a responsibility to be a part of this belonging um, and the support that students need. And um, I know our student services folks, and we probably have many of them on the call, I think that we live and breathe this, right? Um, we learn things like student development theory when we're in graduate school programs, but um, sometimes, you know, um, uh, not all of us are aware of that responsibility um, of, of being part of that system that creates belonging. Um, I wanna make sure that we, we've got just a couple more questions and I do wanna make sure if our audience has any questions that they wanna weave into our, our discussion today, feel free to put those in the chat. Um, 
Reggie, we talked about, you know, your program, the Black Male Institute is, is doing work, I know, with the local high schools. And, and Anne Arundel is an interesting county as far as affluence and not, I mean, there's, you, mm-hmm. you kind of got a microcosm of, of the world right there. Um, mm-hmm. As we're thinking about how we can support kind of prospective Black male students, are there any resources, things that you're seeing, practices that are being particularly impactful that if you could say, hey, uh, if you're listening and these are the two things you need to know to take away with you. Absolutely. So the collaboration with your admissions department and your admissions team at your respective institution is going to be crucial and key. One of the strategies that we're implementing is um, the Summer Bridge Program is one. So providing um, Black males the opportunity to connect on campus and to actually kind of you know, understand the lay of the land of campus before classes start. Now, for some institutions, you may not be in the department who um, actually has a summer bridge, but collaborating with whoever has the summer bridge, um, you know, whoever has a summer bridge at your institution is going to be key. And if there's one that's not created, that could be a strategy to to discuss because there's plenty of research that's showcasing the importance of summer bridge programs for um, black male students, and not just for black males who are graduating high school. You know, we're looking at adult learners um, who are joining um, Summer Bridge program, veterans who are um, joining Summer Bridge program, and then you know, COVID. Um, from some of the students I've met who are new to the community college, COVID gave um, gave people an opportunity to really truly discover their purpose and their passion is my career field that I'm currently in, is this something that I truly um, am passionate about? Do I feel that this is my calling? So I have a lot of um, students who are in job transitions, who haven't been um, in school for the past 10 to 15 years. So having them actually be a part of the Summer Bridge program um, is going to be, it's going to be crucial as well. And then um, two, we're actually going to have a day that's dedicated for Black males before um, they start on campus. So, you know, just trying to be more inclusive in the programming. Summer Bridge may not be the best option for all students, but actually having a day that's dedicated for them, that's just given another opportunity for connection and developing a sense of belonging. So some of the things that we're going to do with this, um, kind of like a Black male student day, we will have multiple constituents come and speak to them. So we'll have VP of um, Student Affairs, Dean of Students come and speak. Uh, we'll have someone from financial aid to come and speak. And then we'll have multiple departments to come and speak so they can connect with our Black males on campus again before um, they start a day, their first day at school, because we want to develop that sense of belonging. And then we're going to give them an opportunity to meet each other as peers as well. And then we also open a space for our allies on campus as well. So even if you don't identify um, as Black, you still um, can identify as an ally and still show up and support um, the students who are transitioning to our campus. We've had a great question, too, about um, how you went about kind of, can you give us some more detail about your institutional-wide committee um, yes. that, you're, you're, that you have that supports this program? And I, I, love, I, I love that you're looking at SummerBridge, but also recognizing that model might not fit all mm-hmm. of your students and their mm-hmm. student needs. And so having this day, I mean in my, in, in, you know, in my years, my 15 years in the community college system and Reggie, I think about, 
you and in, in our interaction when you were, you know, straight out of high school, mm-hmm. that sense of, and it's very basic. I care about you. Yep. I believe in you. Mm-hmm. And I know that you can do this. And I think about how powerful it is when we get to say that to our students early on in their journey from the get-go. Right. Um, and, and what I think, I, I, I don't have any quantitative data on this one, Reggie, but in my, my experience, when we're able to do that, mm-hmm. we see the power of that. Right? Absolutely. Um, play out in retention. Mm-hmm. Um, and success. So, so to circle back, the question from Emmanuel was a wonderful one about sharing more about your institutional-wide committee. Absolutely. Emmanuel, thank you for that question. And again, today I do want you, um, want everybody on the call to be able to walk away with practical steps um, to successfully implement this at your institution or continue to do the great work that you are doing. So the first thing that I did when developing the institutional-wide committee was I developed um, kind of job descriptions and then committee member descriptions as well. So I know I needed, you know, my strength is not social media. So I know I needed someone to handle social media um, for me. I know I needed someone to be responsible for recruiting um, Black males to participate in the initiative. I also know I needed um, someone that was really great with programming. So, so you know, someone to kind of take charge and lead of the different programming that we were offering. And then also wanted to have someone to take advantage of the Summer Bridge initiative. And then I also knew I needed someone from admissions um, to be a part. So I really developed the kind of five or six strategic positions. And then after that, um, I was able to have multiple interest meetings. So one of the strat, another strategy that I utilized was making sure that the academic deans were on board with what I was doing. And when I met with the academic deans, I came with them with data and statistics. So one of the things um, really just showcasing the kind of overall, um, and, I, and one of my VPs told me this too, um, was I was able to compare the statistics of all males on campus to what the black males were doing. So we are, even though I'm looking at the Black Male Institute, we are going to expand to include Latinx males as well. But before we can do that, it's just like, let's master one thing first and then kind of expand as we go. Um, but being able to present though, that data to the academic deans and asking them, okay, this is the help that I potentially would need. So having them to actually push um, the importance of the interest meetings, it brought a lot of faculty and staff to the interest meetings um, for me. So, so one, just developing the strategic positions that I needed, meeting with um, individuals one-on-one to see if they could fit that need. And then two, um, really having the academic deans and really the upper level management support for the initiative was very crucial um, for me to get people to join the actual committee as well. So we meet about, because um, again, with COVID and we are having some issues with retention. We meet about three times per month now. We, we, we meet about, we meet very frequently and we're talking about different retention um, strategies, issues, and then also doing some game planning for the programming that we do as well. So I, so I will start there, develop what, uh, what do you actually need from this team? And then seeing if your VPs or your deans can push out the message for you in addition to yourself pushing it out as well. Yeah. Talk to me, um, great question that came in about COVID impact on your students and programming and participation. I also really want to hear about 
um, some of the most powerful groups that I've gotten to be a part of as far as moving um, you know, students along retention-wise have been these kinds of committees like what you're speaking about that, that really come from all across the campus to examine how we can um, help support our students. So it sounds like retention is a concern. Mm-hmm. You're not <laughs> get in line with every other community college <laughs> out there. Um, and, and so I'd love to hear as well what your strategies are that you mentioned, you know, the, that your brainstorming strategies, what kind of things are you doing? Are you seeing anything that's really making a difference? Um, and, and James also asked the follow-up question, um, how have, how have your administrators um, demonstrated kind of their support, which I, I love that, you know, you went into your deans and you said, here's the data and mm-hmm. here's what we need to do. And here's a game plan um, for, I, I think there's, there's always so, you know, presenting that data and then also saying, I got, but, and I got a plan. Absolutely. Um, that's all great questions. And Juwan, please jump on, um, please jump on this too. But what I've been noticing in the students that I've been serving is that Zoom fatigue has been a real thing for students. So, you know, it was at a point where we were making everything virtual as far as programming. But I had a couple of students that came out of the focus groups and said, I, well, I'm actually tired of being on the computer from eight to three to four the entire day. And then here's another program that I have to kind of jump on. So that was part one. But then part two, we did discover we were missing a whole subsection of students because we were offering programs just in person. So the students that we were missing who weren't able to attend the programs that we were doing in person, they were having a new kind of energy and develop a new sense of belonging on the campus because they were able to start attending um, all the events that they previously would have missed um, prior to COVID. So what we have done is created a hybrid model. So we offer programs in person, but they are also live streamed. So I have someone on the team who is just responsible for the live streaming component and also getting all the questions that may pop in in the chat. Because even though these students are um, kind of viewing some programs live stream, we still want them to feel that they are part of the program and still getting their questions answered. So we have developed a hybrid model to now include in-person for our students who prefer the more in-person feel. But then we also live stream that same event for the students who necessarily can't be there in person or who honestly still don't feel comfortable in COVID being in that kind of closed environment and closed space. They're still able to get that program um, in real time and still have their questions answered as well. So we have now transitioned into a hybrid model offering in-person services, but having the event live stream. And then the second um, part, Juwan, did you want to talk about Zoom fatigue from a student perspective? Uh, yeah, no, I can add a little bit to it. I know, uh, so one thing that I kind of learned going through, um, you know, the whole entire pandemic and things like that is that in a lot of ways, schooling has become like, you know, being there in person every time, which is not a bad thing. It's a great thing and it's a wonderful thing. And it's just like with the Zoom, like with everybody moving to school, uh, like a lot of people were just kind of like replicating what they had in person Mm -hmm. and just putting it straight onto Zoom, which doesn't work. 
at least in the beginning, it wasn't working. So like, at least with my program, with the McNair program at UMBC, we are usually at like this orientation weekend. Mm-hmm. And in the past, it's been like, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and it's from like 9 a.m. all the way to like 9 p.m. And the first year we did that, like we planned that, we did that exact thing on Zoom, which was crazy because the student has to sit in front of the computer from like 9 a.m. all the way to like 9 p.m. And it was a lot. And people got tired, even I got tired to the point where like there are times when I was in like theory meetings together while that was going on and like trying to pay attention to everything because, you know, being on Zoom, I thought I can do it, which sometime I, you know, I was able to achieve it and I got information out of all the meetings that I needed. And sometimes it was just kind of like an overflow. But one thing that I did learn that you also said was like the hybrid method, which Mm -hmm. really kind of like is working and i really thought it's a great way to kind of do it uh and just being minded that you know sitting in front of the screen is was like just way too much when zoom that old thing happened so i really do kind of like agree with you about the hybrid method and that is the way that i see that a lot of people have been using including like us so right now i'm in the process of planning like the orientation weekend for like um, the McNair Scholar Program at UMBC. And we're still using that same type of model because now we're going to be in person, but we still kind of like give our speakers like the option to like, you know, come in through Zoom and be on Zoom. And then, you know, they don't have to be there in person if they don't feel like it. So I do agree like the hybrid method is kind of like the best way to go. And also being mindful of like scheduling break in between. Mm-hmm. each meeting because that really does help just maybe like 10 15 minute break for people to step away from the screen is helpful that's awesome thank you yes uh, i mean i think we're all learning new ways and modalities of getting students engaged not exhausting them um you know making sure that we're connecting with them i know we've gone a few minutes over and and we've got a couple of additional questions i'm i'm hoping maybe we can address one question and then i can send the rest um to you and Jawan maybe to okay. to respond via email um because i want to be conscious of our time together today but kind of a last question because it sort of came up twice is wh- what are we doing retention wise right we're we're concerned about students um and their success, and, and just wondering um, the question, if there's specific things, you know, you're doing with your student population who you're concerned about, um, and James posted the question, um, what happens to students who you know fall behind, even with the help, those who just stopped showing up, how do you continue to keep contact? So, um, curious, Reggie, what, mm-hmm. what specific initiatives you're trying with retention? Perfect. So I'm gonna I wanted to address the fall behind um, question first because in, in and I'm speaking from my identity as a first generation college student and then also just representing students who are first generation college students who have said this kind of same story to me. There have been students I've worked with who may have had a 3.4 leading up to Thanksgiving and Christmas break. And then when they come back on campus, there's like a significant drop off. And I kept seeing this trend within data of students that I was working with and just having kind of conversations with them, you know, one on one office door shut, just kind of me and the student just trying to having a real convo. Um, Some of our first generation college students, when they go home, they experience more trauma than, you know, a family member may ostracize them for being the first one 
in their um, family to go and say, well, you think you, you know, saying things like you think you're better than us now since you've achieved this certain level. I know if I have experienced that, um, you know, in their neighborhoods, they may try to go around their friends that they went to high school with and their friends didn't take that same path. So they may get ostracized or criticized for that route. So if there's that high achieving student and then they come back on campus and something something is off or their grades are starting to slip, sometimes it's because they have experienced some sort of trauma going back into a negative environment for them and their new growth and their new person because they are changing and they're evolving. But if they're going into um, situations where they're not getting that reciprocated, that can discourage students. So with those students who are falling behind, that's why it's important in addition to programming, we do have those checkpoints with students. Um, so we have that initial mid-semester, and then we also have that checkpoint when students return back to campus from any break. So from um, the Thanksgiving break, winter break, and then spring break for some institutions, we do have that kind of check-in, and then we collaborate with um, our counseling department to provide you know, I'm not, I'm not trained as a counselor. So if a student needs kind of some more in-depth um, training or kind of, you know, healing or therapy, we do co- we do connect with that because we do try to focus on holistically. And that's something that I recently implemented to really address trauma for our first generation college students who may go into environments where they are ostracized, criticized or something. Something is happening over the breaks when they do come back and something is making them fall off. So I did want to address that point. And then the second thing has been the early alert system and then the multiple checkpoints throughout the semester. So it isn't much of a drop-off, but even with these in place, there still can be a drop-off where there is measures to kind of try to prevent that. And I know that has been preventing some drop-off for me. So I wanted to answer that. Second, um, to the retention question, one, I really had to get a clear definition. And I think all we just have to get a clear definition of what retention actually means at the particular institution and what's the metrics of successful retention. So for some institutions, retention is going to be the students who successfully complete a semester. That may be their number one metrics of retention. For other institutions, the grade point average from semester to semester may be the ultimate metric. And then for third, retention may be measured on the graduation rates. So institution may prize itself on graduating students within four to five years, but not necessarily have an emphasis on grade point average. Or institution may say retention is based on grade point average, and really it's not focused as long as students get out within the six-year frame. They're more excited about that. So um, just with colleagues I've talked to and just the multiple institutions I've worked at, the retention metric has been different. So it hasn't been a universal, this is what retention means. So whatever institution you're at, I think is you have to be really clear on what's the number one metric for retention. Is it going to be based on grade point average? Is it going to be based on semester to semester completion? Or is it going to be based on graduation rates? Thank you, Reggie. This has been, I can't, I, I'm sorry we've gone over time, but um, I, I'm sorry we have to end our discussion. I mean, this has just been um, pages of notes um, for me, and I'm thinking about, you know, future topics of discussion. Um, so much to unpack as far as 
how are we how are we building out these very comprehensive holistic programs that are supporting our male students, mm-hmm. or particularly our black male students or students of color? How are we then um, also thinking of you know the sense of belonging and and being very intentional about that? And Reggie, I mean, I think that's very new in the community college system. Community colleges haven't had admissions people forever. I mean, a lot of this is very new work that we're doing at our two year institutions in particular. And then, and then also thinking about understanding our students from that place of trauma. I mean, I think there's so much to unpack there. Um, I really do feel like trauma-informed care could really revolutionize the work that we do in, in mm-hmm. some amazing ways. It's going to take some real intentionality, um, but, but really important. Jawan, thank you so much for your time. What a gift for, for all of us. Um, and, and your thoughts and we're all cheering you on. If I mean, everyone on this call is so excited about your next steps. We want to know where you're going. We want to know how it goes. So um, once you're part of the Friday Five Live family, sorry, you're kind of stuck with us, um, Jawan. So um, no, we're cheering you on. Um, we're going to rejoin Friday Five Lives. We do this monthly on April 1st. We're going to be talking about why are our students failing um, lots of thoughts that we were going to come back together and everybody was going to be doing really well once we were sort of more in person. Um, and we're really not seeing that to be the case. And so thinking about some strategies about how we can support our students um, as, as we end up this semester and, and as we look towards kind of the fall semester as well. So Reggie, just from the bottom of my heart, Every time you speak, I just get so emotional. Um, so you, you, you are just an amazing practitioner and we are very, very fortunate um, to have the kind of leader that you are doing the work that you're doing. Yep. Thank you so much. And thank you again for the invite. Hope everybody enjoyed. Please feel free to reach out to me via LinkedIn, Twitter, email, et cetera. I am definitely here to help. And if you just need someone just to talk it through, definitely here. And thank you, Juwan, for being here. And he didn't he didn't mention this, but I'm going to say this. He has a full ride for um, his Ph.D. studies. So very excited um, about oh. his accomplishments. Friday Five Live is brought to you by Innovative Educators. Innovative Educators offers six online services for your onboarding support and training needs. Visit us at InnovativeEducators.org to see how we can support your student success initiatives.